Let's go back to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and while you're turning there, I do just want to say thank you so much to the church uh, for, for remembering us for pastor appreciation and also uh, for my birthday. Certainly uh, undeserved. I'm thankful for it, but it's undeserved. But I just I appreciate y'all. And uh, maybe sometime next year we can have a church appreciation service and we can uh, cook y'all some southern food or something. That, that, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I'd <laughs> settled then. Um, we're going to have a good time tonight. Uh, I'm going to preach a special sermon about uh, the guardian of gratefulness. In fact, I believe it's going to be what I preach on Tuesday night in Wyoming, just something real heavy on my heart. And uh, we're going to have a special time of testimony. I really want to take time to brag on God tonight. Uh, I believe there's certainly worship in that corporate aspect of thanking God publicly. Uh, but this morning, very, very serious uh, topic, very serious text. And before I, I get too deep in that thought, I, I do just want to remind you, as we look at the book of Mark, of course, we've seen that uh, Mark is the gospel. who looks at Jesus as the suffering servant as prophesied by Isaiah more concerned with the works of Christ as opposed to His words. And uh, certainly we've seen that in uh, the devils that Jesus has cast out, the healings He's performed, the training of the disciples, all the many things He's done. But I do want to remind you that in the past couple of chapters, we've been in the middle of crucifixion week. And actually, as of this text, Jesus is within maybe an hour of being arrested. He's going to go through a series of trials throughout the night and then... That morning, um, he's going to be walked to the cross. And so, walking on some pretty sacred ground here. Last week, specifically, we saw Christ as our Passover lamb. And what an amazing thing that Christ would be crucified on the Passover. And we see all the symbolism between the Passover lamb and the Exodus and Jesus Christ. Uh, None of this was done by mistake. None of this was plan B. This was foreordained by the... Uh, determinate counsel of God, and so this was never God's plan B. Um, And we saw, too, that if we would repent and trust in the blood of Christ, the wrath of God would pass over us as well. That's something to be thankful for right there. Um, Now, in this text this morning, we find the disciples together in this upper room for the Passover meal, and Jesus points out that one of them, one of the twelve disciples, will betray Him. Now, in this text, I just want to say this. There is no stronger language of condemnation in the entire Bible than what we're going to read today. And I mean, I really, I really shudder to almost even read these words. I don't take this lightly. And I, I'm going to give you a couple of uh, non-spiritual examples to present this spiritual truth that I really want to get to before I even read this text. But um, as a parent, one thing I've really tried to teach my kids is what I call reverence for the situation. There are certain situations that require a certain reverence, some greater than others, but uh, one of those would be a funeral service. Now listen, I love to cut up and I love to have a good time and y'all have seen that. But there's a certain reverence that I believe that's required in a situation like that. I always tell my kids, you need to reverence the situation. Or when it comes to even the preaching of the Word of God or the reading of the Word of God, there should be a certain reverence to that situation. Um, 
I think about uh, even, and I know this sounds like a carnal example, but I know any hunters will understand this. Um, back in Alabama, I like to do what's called slip hunting or slip hunting. <laughs> Let me translate that. But in Alabama, there's so many trees and there's so many leaves on the ground that most of the time you have to get there before daylight to get to where you're hunting, maybe a tree stand or a ladder stand or whatever, because there's no way to walk through the woods without making noise. Leaves are crunching with every step. But I love it when you have a, a, a storm system come through the night before and it rains and it clears out right there at morning time. And you just know when it's cold and the wind is just right and the ground is wet so you're not going to make noise when you walk. You just know that the bucks are moving that day. And I've tried to, when I've done that, I've tried to, you know, tell Wesley, when I'm slipping through the woods and you're behind me, pay attention to what I'm doing. You know, if I stop, you stop. If I'm looking, you pay attention. And, and then there's those times where you're slipping through the woods and it's real quiet and you come across that buck track that's so fresh that the dirt hadn't even settled around his tracks and you know he's within earshot of where you're standing. And I've tried to tell Wesley, son, I'm just telling you, you, just, you better have reverence for the situation. Because I can't tell you how many times I've walked over a holler and there he, there he is, you know. And, um, or, or there was a situation, I know I'm beating this horse, I want, I want you to get what I'm telling you before I read this text. Uh, when I used to work pest control, sometimes I'd have to crawl up under houses and crawl spaces. And I remember a house right there on Lake Tuscaloosa, right there on the water, and I had to crawl up under this house, and I'm promising you it was July, it was hot. Every few feet I would see another snake skin that had been shed. Every few feet under the snake skin, every few feet, and the light I have, I, I can only see a few feet in front of me. You better have a reverence for the situation, okay? So I think you understand what I'm talking about. When we come to texts like this, you better have a reverence for the situation. And so with that in mind, let's read this text, Mark 14, beginning in verse 17. It says, And in the evening he cometh with the twelve, talking about Jesus and his disciples. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for him that that man, if he had never been born. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the day that you've given us. Thank you for this beautiful weather. God, I just I feel so inadequate to ever preach your word, but certainly things like this. And I pray that even among home folks, mostly even among people who may have a profession of faith that claim to be a Christian, there might even be one lost in our midst. And I pray that it could never be said of anybody in this room that it would have been better for us that we have never been born. God, I pray that uh, you would search and try our hearts. Lord, if there be any boundaries, any blindness, any confusion between us and Jesus, Lord, that you would break those things down today, Lord. Fill me your Holy Spirit, empty me of sin and self, and we just give these things to you. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. I want to preach on the thought of recognizing the Judas in you. 
recognizing the Judas in you. Now you may say, well, I have absolutely nothing in common with Judas Iscariot. I mean, the very name just makes us cringe on the inside. And I wonder, uh, I personally have never met anybody named Judas. And I don't know that I've ever met anybody who knows somebody named Judas. Maybe you do, but I doubt it. It just, even after 2,000 years, it carries a stigma, doesn't it? And it's despicable. When we think about traitors, we think about Judas Iscariot at the very top of the list. And so the very thought that we could have any, in, anything in common with Judas, we just kind of turn our nose up, but don't, don't get carried away. Not so fast. You may have more in common with him than you realize. And this sermon is very serious about examining your heart to make sure that you know beyond any shadow of doubt you're saved, that you know the Lord. And I don't like doubt casting. I've sat under a lot of preaching in my time that I would consider doubt casting. What I mean by that, I've, I've heard fairly commonly from the pulpit statements like this. If you're 99% sure you're saved, you're 100% lost. I don't like that. Or I've heard if you've ever doubted your salvation, you're not saved. Listen, John the Baptist, when he was in prison, sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus if he was really the one or should they look for another. We, we get fleshly sometimes. We, we do have issues with that. And sometimes we need it to be assured of the things that we already know. Uh, I've heard that the devil will never tell you that you're lost. That's not true. He's a liar. Before I got saved, he told me I was okay. There's been times since I've been saved where he said I wasn't okay. So I don't like doubt casting, but I will say this. There are some times in our life, from time to time, where we really need to sit down and take a good look in the mirror and examine our hearts and lives to see whether or not that we're really saved. That our lips align with our lifestyle. That our profession aligns with our production. We need to take that seriously. And in fact, we're commanded to do that. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Christ Jesus is in you, except you be reprobate. So he says, examine yourselves whether or not you be in the faith. And so we need to really take this to heart this morning. Examine yourselves even as you sit here. Are you really saved? Do you know the Lord? Or did you just have some kind of religious experience? Maybe you got baptized or said a prayer or joined a church. Who knows? Have you been born again and does that reflect in your life? Do you desire to serve God? Because I believe that Judas gives us a great example of an imposter of that very thing. What are some things that we might have in common with Judas Iscariot this morning? Well, number one, I believe that it's possible for people to be like Judas in their motives. You might be like Judas in your motives this morning. Look at verse 17 again. It says, And in the evening he cometh with the twelve, and as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. Now, this group of twelve was a special group. I mean, these are the only twelve people who walked with Jesus for over three years. I mean, how many people can say that your mentor was God in the flesh? That's breathing some pretty rarefied air. 
Well, who, who is your teacher? Uh, Lord of glory, Son of God, Creator of all things. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. They heard the living Word preach the Word. They heard Him preach. They saw Him cast out devils. They saw Him heal the blind, the dumb, and the lame. They saw Him feed the 5,000, walk on water, command the storms, and raise the dead. Are you kidding me? They walked with Him for over three years. And I want to remind you, and I think that we take this for granted sometimes, you do realize that not everything that Jesus did is recorded in the Bible. God didn't tell us everything. He just told us what He wanted us to know. Even John said that if He had wrote everything, there couldn't be enough books to publish it all. And so in my mind, I can't help but think about the, the campfire conversations. The, the night times in the wilderness, those personal conversations with God in the flesh. I can't imagine what that would be like. Well, one day I will because I'll be able to do it for all eternity. But um, they, Judas Iscariot had this. He walked with the Lord. He heard Him preach and saw Him do all these things. And so, man, this was a, a special group that was privy to some special training and information. And yet, even with all of this godly influence, Judas was never saved. I want to emphasize that because I've had a lot of people say that Judas has proved that somebody can be saved and lose their salvation. Bah humbug. It's not true. He was never saved. You, you know this because John 6 and verse 70, Jesus said, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? John 13, 10 and 11, he says, Not all of you are clean, for he knew who should betray him. Talking about Judas, he said he wasn't clean, he wasn't saved. And so uh, he didn't lose his salvation, he was never saved, even despite all of this godly influence. So the question remains, why did he follow Christ for so long if he was not saved? And I mentioned this in the past couple of weeks because we've hit on this. I don't want to stay here long, but for those that weren't here or don't know, uh, Judas held the money bag of the ministry. We, we read that in John. And he, we find that in this instance that we preached on two weeks ago when, when Mary broke this expensive spikenard and, he, and she anointed the feet and head of Jesus. That spikenard would have cost about a year's wages for the average worker. And Judas was upset about that. He said this could have been donated to the poor. But the Bible said he was upset because he held the bag and because he was a thief. And so he, in Judas's mind, in, in the mind of the disciples and most of the Jews at this time, they thought Jesus was coming in there to take over by force, defeat the Romans, take over the throne of David, and everything's just going to be A-OK -okay once again in Jewish life. They thought he was going to be this great military king. And as I've said before, if Judas is the treasure for Jesus, think about what that means for him if he becomes the king of Israel. He's going to be the treasure for the king of Israel. I might follow somebody for three years if I thought that. That was his mindset. And the moment that Judas turned on Jesus was when he realized that was not his mission. It wasn't going to be lucrative for him like he thought it was going to be. And he turned on him in an instant. But see, here's the thing, and this is so important. Judas wasn't following the true Jesus. He was following an idol of who he thought Jesus was and who he wanted him to be. People all over the world, if you think you don't have anything in common with Judas or nobody else does, people all over the world 
even in the Baptist church, do this. They're not following and serving the Jesus of the Bible. They're following a Jesus they've created in their own imagination to serve their own purpose. Many believe in a health and wealth Jesus that will grant them all of their wishes like some cosmic genie. In fact, did you know that Kenneth Copeland is worth over $600 million? $600 million, got his own personal fleet of jets. He's got six or seven houses. And, and he, sur- he survives solely on the donations of people. Donations. Why? Because he's given them the health and wealth of Jesus. If you give this ministry $1,000, the Jesus I know will give you $10,000 in return. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? But how noble of a cause is that? It's silly. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a, it's a Jesus created in the image of sinful men and women. And people just lap it up because they like that. I'd like to give to a God who'd make me rich. Some believe in a pacifist Jesus, a cheap grace Jesus who celebrates and affirms them in their sin. You would be surprised, and maybe you wouldn't, of how many people in the LGBT plus community that I'm talking to when I go minister at the gay pride parades in different places that claim to be a Christian. I've met more Christians at the gay pride parade than I've met atheists. Well, God loves me. He, he accepts me just as I am. No, He doesn't. That's not the God of the Bible. He's a God of justice and wrath and holiness. And he can't wicked sin. That's the God that you have created in your own imagination. Some people believe in a despot, tyrannical Jesus who is just waiting to strike them with lightning every single time they even remotely mess up. That's not the God of the Bible either. The God of the Bible is a God of mercy and grace and patience and love. That's not the God of the Bible. Maybe somebody grew up in a really strict religious setting or maybe they grew up with a tyrannical father and they have cast that image onto God. That's not God. Some people believe uh, in, in an image Jesus or a political Jesus where he might be good for business or family relations. and So that's why they go to church. That's what they want to do. The cults believe in a demi-Jesus who isn't really God in the flesh. Let me ask you this. Do you really love the Jesus of the Bible? Or have you created a Jesus in your own imagination? It's an idol is what it is. It's idolatry. Do you love the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who died for the sin of the world and rose on the third day? Or, like Judas, have you created a Jesus in your own mind who requires nothing more from you than you are wanting to give anyway? What are your motives for following Christ? Do you want Him to save you from your sin or from your situation? 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, it says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of or not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, Judas was in it for the money. He stole what he could and then decided when he couldn't get any more, he decided to sell Jesus out for what he could get. Now, I've heard all my life that Judas sold Jesus for the price of a slave, which was 30 pieces of silver. And that is true, but it's not completely true. And let me explain what I mean. And I found this really interesting. But Jesus was not just sold for the price of a slave. 
He was sold for the price of a slave that had been gored by a bull. Uh, Exodus 21 verse 32 had a specific law about this. It said, If the ox shall push a manservant or maidservant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. In other words, if somebody owned an ox, and that ox bored or killed or injured somebody else's slave, they would have to pay that slave owner 30 shekels of silver for his gored slave. You not see the symbolism in that. Jesus Christ, wasn't, he wasn't just sold for a slave. He was sold as a gored slave. And sure enough, he was about to be pierced for our iniquities. And so are you like Judas in your motives? Just get from Jesus what you can. Or are you in it for, to serve him because you love him? Because he saved you from the power and penalty of your sin. I see a lot of Judas Iscariots in the religious world. They just want Jesus for one thing, for what He can do for them. Friend, He's already done enough. I mean, if God just shut the windows of heaven, if He never did anything else to bless us, has He not done enough? Came to this earth, born of a virgin, lived as a God-man, lived the sinless life in our place that we could never live, died on the cross, taking the wrath of God the Father upon Himself for our sin, died in our place, rose from the dead on the third day. How could we ever ask for more? Many are like Judas is scared in their motives for following Jesus in the first place. But then number two... I think a lot of people can be like Judas in their manipulation. Look at verse 17. This is so intriguing to me. It says, And in the evening he cometh with the twelve, and as they said it and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, it is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. Now, to me, this is one of the most perplexing statements in all of the Bible here. They have, all the disciples have walked with Judas alongside them for over three years. And when it comes to this place where Jesus is seated in this upper room, just him and his disciples gathered around on the floor around this table. They were sitting on the floor. They didn't sit in chairs. And Judas is at the premier position, the honored position to the left of Jesus. See, in that Jewish culture, where you sat at the table had a lot of social significance. And Judas was actually at the place of honor. That's amazing to me that Jesus would even do that. And it's at this time when he looks at all of them in the face and he said, One of you is going to betray me. And not one of them, not one of them, had even the slightest clue that it could be Judas. That scares me to death. And that's just so amazing to me. I mean, even Peter, as much as he stuck his foot in his mouth, even Peter didn't say, you know what? That Judas guy is kind of, I've noticed he's kind of off. I've always had a funny feeling about that guy. That never happened. And another thing that kind of intrigues me, is they kind of went around in circles and said, Is it I, Lord? Well, that, that tells you right there what they think of themselves, how much confidence they had in themselves. Lord, is it I? Nobody had a clue that Judas was capable of doing something like this. They thought he was one of them. They thought he was saved. They thought he was genuine, but he wasn't. 
And even when Christ flat out told them who it was, He said, it's the one that dips his bread in the dish with me. And evidently Judas, they both had their hands in this salt. They would take the bread and they would dip it in this mixture of oil and herbs. And even when He said that, they still didn't get it. He said, it's the one that dippeth with me in the dish. And they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand that it was Judas because they couldn't compute it. They had been so fooled. And by the way, I need to point this out as a doctrinal matter before I move on. Verse 20, when Jesus said, It is he who dippeth with me in the dish, that is a direct fulfillment of a prophecy made in Psalm 41 and verse 9, where it says, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. And I find this very interesting. In the context of that psalm, David is writing about Ahithophel, And Ahithophel sided with his son Absalom when Absalom took the throne by a coup. He he kicked David out and would have killed him if he could have got his hands on him. Well, when Absalom died, Ahithophel knew his fate, so he hung himself. Isn't that amazing? This is a dual prophecy. It had a direct meaning and a future meaning. We see that a lot in Scripture. But this is a clear prophecy about Judas who would betray Jesus and dip his bread with him and go out and hang himself after the deed had been done. I mean, the Bible is just such a God book. Nobody had a clue about Judas. And think about this. In this text, Judas is less than an hour away from betraying the Lord of glory, and he's partaking of the Passover with him. The most sacred of all Jewish holidays. I mean, he's playing the part, isn't he? He's playing the religious game, but his heart is wicked and depraved. Listen, what a terrifying thought that people can sit in church week after week and hear the preaching of the Word of God, sing every word of every song, put money in the offering plate, say the right things in conversation, look the part, go on outreaches and special events, and die having a testimony of salvation, but going to hell. I'm talking about having partaken of the ordinances and the Lord's Supper, looked apart, have everybody think that you're in heaven when you die, and yet you're in hell for all eternity. How horrible would that be? There is no more serious matter in all the universe. What doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And we need to examine our heart to see whether we're in the faith or not. Have you ever been saved? from the power and penalty of your sin? Are you truly born again? Do you have a real personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have a real desire to serve Him on a daily basis? Or are you just playing the part? Judas was never saved. He was just religiously trained. Are you a truly born again Christian or have you just been religiously trained? Are you playing the part? Are you like Judas in your manipulation You may fool your parents, you may fool your spouse, you may fool your children, you may fool your co-workers, you may fool your church members. You're not going to fool God. Because the Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And He can even see the heart. He can see the thoughts of our mind and the intents of our heart. Isn't Isn't it scary to think that somebody like Judas could fool so many people so well? There's a lot of people like that. I've been fooled before. Um, I think the worst thing about Judas 
I think not only had he deceived everybody else, I think he had fooled himself pretty good too. You know what the worst type of deception is? It's self-deception. It's bad enough to be in a bad way like Judas, but it's a lot worse to think you're all right in that bad way. Are you deceiving yourself? But then third, and this is the scariest thing to me, verse 21. I mean, I don't think you can find a scarier verse of condemnation in all the Bible, but it's true. Verse 21, it says, The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for him that that man, if he had never been born. Sadly, people can be like Judas number three, and I'm done. They can be like him in their march to their own damnation. The march to their own damnation. Jesus literally says it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. And let me say that that everyone that dies without Jesus Christ goes to hell where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The fire is never quenched and the soul never dies. And even those that have never heard of Jesus Christ, they've never heard the gospel, they are without excuse because according to Romans chapter 1 and other places, they can know for sure that through creation and through their own conscience that there is a supreme creator and lawgiver. And if they reject that knowledge of God, why would they accept further knowledge of the gospel? There's nobody that's going to stand before God and say, well, God, I never heard about Jesus. He's going to say, you didn't want to. You didn't want to. You rejected the knowledge you already had. So nobody's going to have an excuse. But I will say this. I do believe that those who have been given more truth will have a harsher judgment. I believe that God is going to hold people accountable for the truth they suppressed, for the truth that they heard and rejected. And nobody in that case, if that is true, and I believe it is, I believe it's what Jesus is saying here, nobody in history, I believe, has rejected more truth than Jesus' spirit had. Walked with Jesus. He's going to be judged and condemned by the one that he walked with for over three years. It's horrible. Let me say this. It's horrible for somebody to die and go to hell from a bar stool or from a back alley somewhere with a needle in their arm or maybe dying a drunk driving accident. That's horrible for somebody to die and go to hell in that situation. But I'm going to tell you, it's a tragedy for somebody to die and go to hell from a church pew, rejecting the very truth that could have saved them. Think about this. Man, this this thought is almost overwhelming. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And we find out in John chapter 10 that Jesus is the door of heaven. And somebody wisely pointed out, I didn't come up with this, but I read it. Someone's pointed out, this means that Judas kissed the door of heaven and died and went to hell. Wow. Wow. Are you like Judas in your manipulation? Are you you beginning to recognize that there might be some Judas in you? Are you like... Judas, in your motives, what about your manipulation? What about your march to your own damnation? I mean, this is serious stuff. It doesn't get any more serious than this. And I know this is not a happy, feel-good, 
shout amen message. I get that. We're going to have a good message tonight. We're Come back tonight and we'll salve it up. <laughs> but I, I can't be any more serious than this. There's people all across this country, all over the world, that are sitting on churches, Bible-preaching churches, that are going to die and go to hell because they were playing the part. Playing the part. Do you have that in common with Judas? I'll say this and I'm done. I can assure you that whatever you do have in common with Judas Iscariot, I can promise you this, there's one thing that nobody in this room has in common with Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot has no more opportunity to repent. Every person in this room still does. You do have the opportunity. At the sound of my voice, even this morning, as you sit there, you have the opportunity to repent and believe and to put your faith and trust in that Passover lamb that we talked about last week. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only perfect satisfaction for the wrath of God. If you would repent and believe in His finished work, you could be saved and the wrath of God could pass over. You could be made right with the God that created you. You can be forgiven. You can be restored. I can't think of a better deal than that. But if we do reject that, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How can we do that? Would you come as, uh, would you stand as she comes this morning? Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm about to pray. I'm going to do things slightly different this morning. Uh, I just feel led to do this. I always invite people. You know, a lot of churches, I mean, I believe in invitation. Don't get me wrong about that. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But a lot of churches will have somebody come down and they'll walk them through a little plan and say a prayer. It may take two minutes, and I don't like rushing such an important thing. But I will say this, and this is why I'm going to do different. If you have any doubts about your salvation, if you think you've never been saved, if you don't know for sure today if you died, if you have a home in heaven, I'm actually, during the invitation, I'm going to stand at the back door. And if you would like to come talk to me, if you want to come pray about something, it may not necessarily be salvation related. We can go to the back. We can talk and pray about it. And if that happens, Brother Stonehouse is going to come up and close everything out. Um, but don't walk out of here with doubts or worry or wonder. Why, don't, why wouldn't you get that settled before you leave? So let's pray, and I'm going to walk to the back as she plays. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that... Lord, even though, uh, God, you are a just God, I'm even thankful for that. You're a holy God. Lord, we can trust what you say. And you've not only given us a stern warning, God, but you've given us a great promise of hope that we don't have to have that wrath. Lord, we don't have to experience that, that you have made a way, God, if somebody would repent and just trust Jesus, if they would give their life to you, Lord, that you would save them from that wrath to come. Lord, I pray that uh, if somebody doesn't have that settled today, they would get that settled. And Lord, that they could be born again. God, that you would save them today. We give these things to you and praise you. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen.